Good morning, Four Oaks Church. Pastor Paul, so glad that um, we're here together. So glad that we're all um, coming back online. And so whether you're in person, online, um, super pumped that you're joining us. You know, it's interesting, at the beginning of this calendar year, um, we made a determination about how we wanted to spend this next season in God's Word. We decided to preach through 1 Timothy. And one of the reasons that we chose this book is that this is a book all about the church and who God has called us to be as the people of God, the family of God. And coming out of a season, or let's be honest, there is a lot of confusion, ambiguity, um, division, conflict within the body of Christ at large. We thought this would be a great book to camp out on. Well, today we draw this study to a close, and we're going to be finishing up in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Before we jump in, though, let me just kind of forecast our preaching trajectory and kind of what's going to happen from here. So in late August, once everybody is back in school, now I realize some of you are still in school, so this gets confusing, okay? But when we are back, back in school, late August, we're going to jump in that little book called Romans. And I hope to die in the pulpit, 85 years old, preaching through Romans 16. So about 30 years, I think it should take us. Um, But before that, though, um, starting next Sunday, we're going to spend our summer months um, in Galatians chapter 5 asking what does it mean for the people of God to lead a spirit-filled life? So in a decidedly non-spirit-filled culture, what does it mean for us as God's people to embrace and display and aspire and live to the fruits of God's spirit in our lives? And so that's going to be next week. We will start that. But today, 1 Timothy chapter 6. So please turn there. Now, if you're playing along at home, you might have noticed that for 1 Timothy 6 verses 1 and 2, we sort of passed over those verses, okay? Those are verses about slavery and masters. You may say, Pastor Paul, are you avoiding these verses? And I would tell you, absolutely, 100%. Um, No, actually, last summer when we preached through 1 Peter, we spent a whole sermon talking about slavery in the Bible, slavery in the Old Testament, the New Testament, what does it mean for us, um, kind of this detailed exposition. And so um, you can refer to that sermon there online under, under the First Peter resource tab. But let me just do something for, for us. Maybe you weren't here or you weren't paying attention. Well, let me just do a kind of a, a brief download here. I call this kind of, kind of slavery in 60 seconds, okay? It's actually more like 600 seconds, but you get where I'm going. Let me just say this, because a lot of times we come to passages of Scripture like this, and particularly in our cultural moment, we may be embarrassed by them as Christians. We don't know what to do with them. They're, they're, they're kind of these sticky wickets. And, and a couple of things I want to say and then try to help us understand what, we, what we're to do with passages like this. First thing to remember is that slavery in the ancient world was very different than slavery in America in two distinctly important ways. Number one, it was not race-based. That's number one. Number two, slavery in the ancient world was not always undesirable. Sometimes it was a, a means of grace and provision and survival for people, people who were destitute, people who came from nothing, people who were poor. It was an opportunity for advancement. It was an opportunity to gain freedom and status and culture in society. So in that way, in those situations, slavery in the ancient world was more like something like the military, right, where there are certain expectations and 
obligations on both parties and less like chattel slavery here in America where people were actually kidnapped and uh, you know, taken away from their families and bought and sold as property. Nonetheless, though, let me just, saying all that, there were obviously in the ancient world many, many situations where slavery was cruel, it was forced, it was abusive, and what can sometimes trouble us, we wonder as God's people, why did Paul or Peter or even Jesus, why, why didn't they just call for the wholesale abolition of this despicable institution? Because we do see places in Scripture where Paul seems to be kind of laying the seeds for this, right? Remember in his letter to Philemon, he pleads with Philemon to free Onesimus, his slave, because this slave was now a brother in Christ and was useful for Paul in his ministry. We see Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 telling slaves in the church in Corinth, if you can get your freedom, brothers, then do it. We've even seen Paul tell us in 1 Timothy 1, way back when we were in that a few months ago, that the, the, the profession of what Paul calls man-stealing, that is kidnapping people, taking away from their families, forcing them into slavery, was not consistent with the gospel, was not, a, was an, attitude, was not an attitude consistent with what it means to be a believer. But yet, we have to reckon with the fact that there is no universal condemnation for slavery as found in the ancient world from any of the scripture writers, and we have to ask why. And I think this speaks to what Paul's initial priorities were as an apostle. And this is the same for even Jesus and the other apostles. Remember, slavery was a pervasive societal institution. There were millions of slaves. It was deep-baked into the fabric of that culture. There, there was no middle class. There was either the ruling class, the aristocracy, and then those who were connected to them who made their living from them. And you can imagine what sort of havoc this wreaked, right, when the gospel came spreading like wildfire across the ancient world. Here you had a non-Christian slave owner, a non-Christian slave. They both become Christians, and it's like, it interjects this whole new reality. And so for Paul, understand something, Paul's most important priority, not his only important priority, but certainly his initial priority was making sure the people in these churches understood the gospel. They, they needed to understand what it was that gave them equal standing in the kingdom of God as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's initial priority was not political and social revolution, as important as that was in its own context, because we did see as Christianity moved across the ancient world, the institution of slavery by and large was abolished, done away with as the gospel took root. See, it's an important reminder, okay, and this is in a day when, when social justice is a very big issue, right? But understand, church, when social justice is stripped apart from the gospel, it in itself can simply become another moral crusade, another religion in itself. And for Paul, in Paul's way of thinking, social justice flows out of the gospel. The priority is always gospel proclamation, we as believers are called to engage in social justice, whether it's through fighting racism, poverty, 
um, right to life issues, those are always, always crucial. But they flow from the impetus of the gospel, changed hearts, changed lives. Paul understood that unless people's hearts were transformed, okay, it gave no lasting hope for institutions to be transformed. And this is why we see, for example, in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul endeavoring to make sure in his work with Timothy that Timothy, the people of God, have to get the gospel right. And so Paul closes this letter in 1 Timothy 6. Now we're going to get into our passage for today. By reminding Timothy, Timothy, your fight for the gospel is not just a public one with these false teachers, although it is that. But Timothy, the priority for you as the man of God is the fight for the gospel in your own heart. And as we're going to see as believers, that is to be our most important fight as well. And so if you can, willing, able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read our passage this morning. 1 Timothy 6, we're going to read verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Paul speaking, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, as we close this chapter in this book, Lord, we pray that the echo of your word would reverberate through our hearts for the coming days and weeks, months, seasons. Lord, you tell us in your word, we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word which proceeds from your mouth. And so, Lord, we come to you as your people this morning in a posture of need, with open hands, asking for you to feed us, asking for you to minister to us. Lord, these are confusing times. Lord, we need the clarity that only your word can provide. And we ask that you would give it in your name. Amen. Please take your seats. 
Because Paul has dispatched Timothy to Ephesus to go clean up the mess of the false teachers. Can you imagine? This is Timothy. It's his first pastoral assignment. And Paul sends this green pastor into the midst of the wolves where there's licentiousness and false teaching and um, aberrant behavior and covetousness and greed and all these things. It's just, it's just an absolute mess. And he says, Timothy, go get them, son. <laughs> go get them. Thanks, Paul. That was helpful. That's Timothy. And Paul, part of what Timothy has come to do, and if you look at, you find this in verse 21, is that there were those in the church who would swerve from the faith. There were those in leadership who were leading others to swerve from the faith. And Paul is entrusting this task to Timothy to snatch people away, to correct the false teachers, to correct the errors that are happening. Now, church, let me tell you what I find fascinating about chapter 6. What's interesting, fascinating to me, is how Paul on one hand, is talking about false teachers. He's talking about false theology. He's talking about um, covetousness and all these things that have infected the church. And then he's talking about money. And we have to ask why. What is the connection here between false teachers and wealth or false teachers and money? And I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't mean it to be tongue-in-cheek, maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but you get it. Here it is. Have you ever met a false teacher who is poor? Have you ever met a false teacher who is not wealthy or doesn't have money or doesn't have some national reputation or status? Honestly, I can't think of one. See, propagating false doctrine or false theology, coming up with, hmm, no one's ever thought of this before. I've got something new and novel to say. You guys have to understand that is a lucrative business. There is something massively to be gained in this industry, whether it's books or conferences, cultural status, the academy, the respect, the admiration of the world around us. Um, These are all deep, alluring things that draw people in to distort Christian truth. That was what was happening in the church in Ephesus. Let me just give you an example. There is a son of a well-known, respected, godly, faithful Christian leader. I won't tell you which Christian leader this is, but I'll drop a little Easter egg in the sermon. I will quote him at some point in the sermon, okay? Just to make sure that you're paying attention. Well, the son of this well-respected, godly, faithful Christian leader has made his fame on TikTok, right? And he's made his fame on TikTok by mocking traditional Christianity traditional Christian theology, doing the whole, you know, serpent in the garden thing. Hmm, did God really say? Now, is he doing this because he's really concerned about you? No. He is making untold wealth and fame off this quote-unquote false theology his father has been teaching his whole life. And so Paul knows this, and he is charging Timothy to be on the lookout for this in the church. But let me tell you why this particular passage that we're going to look at this morning is so pertinent. Because remember, this is the end of the the letter. Paul is signing off, and we typically think that the most important things we save to the very last to tell someone. And it's here that Paul goes from this sort of public warning to these false teachers 
to a personal pleading to Timothy, his son. Look at verse 11. He says, but you, O man of God, listen, flee these things. These things meaning all the things these false teachers are doing. Their covetousness, their greed, their discontentment. Timothy, this has captured these men. They are falling away. He tells us in verse 10 that they have wandered from the faith. They have pierced themselves with many transgressions. That word pierced literally means to impel yourself on a pole. He says, Timothy, that's what some of these people have done for themselves spiritually. And I'm begging you, O man of God, not you. See, this is personal. See, false teaching, false false doctrine, it's, it's not a game. It's not a debate on Twitter. It's, it's, there are eternal consequences at stake. And I love the way Paul introduces this text, this last paragraph, by saying, Timothy, O man of God. O man of God. That is a, an Old Testament designation. And it's used for men in the Old Testament like Moses and David and Elijah. Men who were commissioned by God to be God's messenger and to take the word of God to God's people. This is Paul's way of reminding Timothy, Timothy, who this is who you really are. This is what you are called to. And here we're, in this text, we're going to see Paul exhort Timothy to three things in the fight for faith. He wants to leave him with these three things. He wants to leave us with these three things as we close down the book of 1 Timothy. And here they are. Number one, he he exhorts Timothy towards a particular posture, number one. Number two, he he points Timothy to a, a prescriptive practice. And finally, he calls Timothy to do all of this in the shadow of a powerful presence. So let's look first at the posture Paul exhorts Timothy to. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Paul lays out for Timothy here, he lays out for us a very very simple spiritual strategy for your Christian life. Now, when I say simple, I didn't say easy. But but it's not complicated. Paul says, Timothy, to persevere in the fight for faith, you've got to do one of two things. You have to either, you have to fight, okay, or you have to flee. And sometimes you have to do both at the same time, flight or fight. You guys know the deal, right? If somebody comes up to you with a weapon, with a gun, with a knife, in a confrontation, you have one of two options, real options there, right? You're either going to duke it out. You're either going to stand up for yourself and you're going to try to disarm them or deescalate the situation. You're going to, you're going to come right back at them. There's, there, there's fight. Or if you know your, your case is hopelessly lost, what are you going to do? You're going to run right as fast as you can. But what is the one thing that you can't do in that kind of confrontation? What is the one thing that if you do this one thing, you're done? See, you, you can't freeze, right? You can't freeze. You can't become immobilized. You can't become the, the, the deer in the headlights, so to speak. You have to do one or the other. You, you can't just stand there 
immobilize or cower in the corner, that will get you hurt physically. Well, Paul is telling us it's the same thing in our spiritual lives. It's either fight or it's flight. And not to do so, to not contend with that reality, is to put yourself in a perilous spiritual place. And as we're going to see, both of these, by the way, are required for us as believers in our walk with Christ. Let's, Let's look at both of these. First of all, flee. Paul says, O man of God, flee these things. Now, the word flee in the Greek, it, may, it means to take ongoing evasive action. It means to run. It means you don't play footsie with sin. You don't get right up to the line to see just how close you can get to the fire without being burned. As Bobby Bowden once said of Randy Moss when he was here for about three weeks practicing during spring, during, during, during spring practice, he said the best thing about Randy Moss is that when he has the football, he runs like a scalded dog. That's what he said. He, he, he was lightning fast. And Paul uses that same terminology to say, when sin confronts you, you run. And not just fleeing, but running towards righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And so let me, let me just keep it real here, just like right, right, out, right off the bat. Because a lot of times we love to say, oh, that sounds great, Pastor Paul. What, what, what does this mean in reality? It means if you're watching a movie and a gratuitous sex scene comes on or naked images come on, and which, by the way, is a little different than violence, which you know is make-believe, but the images of skin on the screen are not make-believe. They are very real. You run. You don't rationalize. You don't say, hmm, but Pastor Paul, the artistic value of this movie is of such a nature. The the storyline is so compelling, right, that we just sort of, no, no. Paul's like, are are, are you kidding? You, You pursue Listen to what you pursue. Godliness, righteousness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. But there's also another way. Even as we are fleeing, we are also standing our ground. We are fighting the good fight. Of course, that's an athletic metaphor. And it denotes this idea that you have two combatants in the ring. And they are taking hold or seizing and clutching one another in a struggle. Now, interestingly, that word for take hold or seize actually means to grab with hostile intent. I love that. To, to, to grab with violence. I had a couple friends in college. They went to an Elton John concert in the early 80s. And one thing you need to know about for all you Elton, if you're not an Elton fan, you need to know, Elton John wears a different wardrobe set for every show he does. He's never worn the same one twice. And at the end of the show, he'll take one of the articles of his clothing, his attire, which is usually crazy and outlandish, and he will throw it into the audience. Well, in this particular concert, he was wearing this white tuxedo with this white top hat. And he proceeded to take off his white tuxedo jacket with the long tails, and he threw it into the pit of people that were there right by the stage. And there's a struggle that ensued. So there was a group of my friends who had one sleeve of the tux. And there was a group of other guys who had the other sleeve of the tux. And they were like struggling back and forth. 
Who was going to win this epic titanic struggle? And so into the middle, this steps this third party and he look, kind of looks at the situation and he says, I think that group has got it. You, you guys have got it. Of course, he was one of our guys who was undercover, but it was great, right? So, so, so they got this tuxedo and of course, they proceeded to wear it at each other's weddings for the next 25 years. And then, then Fat Pat lost it. But anyway, that's a whole nother story, okay? That's a whole nother story. That's what the word means. To take hold in a life or death grip. See, when Paul says, take hold of eternal life, he doesn't mean that you're earning eternal life. The idea is that you've been given a great possession. You're, you're running home. You're like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory when he gets the golden ticket and that lady says, take the ticket, Charlie, and run home. It's his, but he's, he's guarding it. Paul says, that Christian is to be your posture of your spiritual life. See, John Piper says that Christianity is a violent religion. Now, what does he mean by that? He says, in order to wage the good fight, to fight the good fight, you've got to make war. You've got to engage in spiritual violence. Understand something, not against other people. Christian, your greatest struggle, our greatest struggle is not against the world. It's not against the culture. It's not against the government. It's not against media. It's not against political parties. That is not your greatest struggle. That is not my greatest struggle. Our greatest struggle is one that resides right here. Paul says you've got to get violent. You've got to get mean spiritually speaking. It's why the title of this sermon is, do you have a spiritual mean streak? Paul's not playing around. If you look back at verse nine, Paul says, it is because of these things, these sinful and harmless desires that these false teachers, people have been plunged into spiritual ruin and destruction. Now here's the deal. When we think about the most common picture or metaphor for sin that we have in the Bible, it is this concept or idea of idolatry. Now understand, idolatry, again, is not that little tiki statue in the Brady Bunch episode that brings bad luck, okay? We we typically think about idolatry in that way. It's something that pagans or, you know, people long ago bowed down to these idols. That's not what the Bible means by idolatry. Idolatry is anything that we adore and value and worship above God. See, right now, across the world, people are worshiping. Remember, worship is not what Christians do. Worship is what people do. We're all designed to worship value, hold something as dear and precious to us in our hearts. And so the question is not, what, not, not are you worshiping, it's what are you worshiping? But when we think about idolatry, I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever asked Where is it, Pastor Paul, that idolatry comes from? Why why is it that we as human beings just aren't content? Why do we always want something more? Why do we always want something different? Why why are we never satisfied with what we have? And I want you to, to listen to these two verses. This is where idolatry comes from. This is where all sin is rooted. And here it is, Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desires. Now listen to this. And covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. James 4 says the same thing. You desire and you do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. See, the root of idolatry, church, is covetousness. Desiring something we should not have. Wanting something that's not ours. Or wanting something that might be a good thing, but we're wanting too much of it or wanting it in the wrong way. It's at the bottom of all sin. See, covetousness manifests itself in either wanting something more or something different. And see, you can see how this subtle form of idolatry makes its way into people's souls. I, I, I just want a different marriage. I want a different sex life. I want a different level of income. I want a different kind of life. I, I just want a new start. These are all the things that people say to themselves when their souls are discontent. And Paul says, it is precisely this that have led many astray. It is precisely this that have led many to impel themselves spiritually, to swerve from the faith, to depart from the living God. And so Paul gives very specific warnings. Now, the reason I think he brings up money in this context and tells us, remember we, Pastor Scott showed us this a couple of weeks ago, earlier in the chapter, when Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, it doesn't say the root, it doesn't say money is the root of all evil, okay? Money is a good thing. It's a given thing. It's a God-given thing. It's a gift. He doesn't say it's, the, it's money. He says it's the love of money, right? It's the desire for more and more and more, that insatiable pull to, to, to something else out there. And it's not the root of all evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil. Because here's what makes money and possessions and stuff particularly dangerous, especially for us in the 21st century here, right? You see, money becomes the carrier for our covetousness. See, it, it, it puts our covetousness in operation. It unwinds it. It releases it. It gives it a vehicle to express itself. And so Paul is warning Timothy here in this posture, and it's the posture we have to endeavor to as believers. We have to fight against discontentment. Understanding that the problem, see, we think simply by getting more, that will be the, that will be the solution to our discontentment. How's that working for you? See, the, the, the key is not getting more. It's giving more. And this is Paul's second point, the prescriptive pre practice. Let, let me read verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now understand who Paul is talking to here. A couple weeks ago, we looked at this idea that Paul says, 
Paul's addressing those who are desiring to be rich, meaning they have an unhealthy, insatiable desire just to, to, to get more money, to get more stuff. Paul is speaking to that group. In this group, he's speaking to those who are already wealthy, right? And this should really grab our attention because by any standards of the world's history, that, that is probably most all of us. And it's very interesting here that Paul, what Paul says to them, what Paul says to us, interestingly, Paul does not tell us, he doesn't tell Timothy and the church, he doesn't tell them to divest all of their wealth like Jesus does with the rich young ruler. Remember that? Jesus says, sell all your stuff, follow me, your, your life will be complete. Very interesting, Jesus doesn't tell that to anybody else. He tells it to that man because that's what that man needed to hear for God to put his thumb on that man's heart, right? He was speaking to that man's idolatry. Well, Paul, in much the same way here, doesn't tell us to divest all of our wealth. What he says, though, is to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. And it's interesting, look down in verse 19, Paul says, in doing so, we store up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. We take hold of that which is truly life. Now, let me explain, I think, how this spiritual transaction works in our hearts. Now, it is, I'm going to say something I think is very true, and it's easily verifiable. Our money follows our hearts, and I think we all understand that, right? If, if, if you want to know what I value, if I want to know what you value, um, we'll swap bank statements and credit card statements, right? You go first. Okay, you go first, and then I'll come later. But it, it wouldn't be hard to, to, to figure that out, right? I, we all spend our money on the things that we love, on the things that we enjoy. And so if we want to find out what's captured our hearts, just look at where our time, energy, money, possessions are going. That's true. But that's not what this passage teaches. See, this passage teaches that it's actually also the reverse. That there's a reciprocal process that happens with our stuff and our hearts. You see, what this text says is that our hearts follow after our treasure. Yes, it's true. Our treasure follows our hearts. But it's also just as true that our heart follows our treasure. You see, none of us wake up one day and magically we are valuing and treasuring or in love with travel or with college football or with boating or fine wine and dining or hunting or have I, have I stepped on your idol yet, right? I don't know. All those things are good, right? All those things are really good. But if you struggle with valuing that thing the most, it's not like you woke up one day and that's the way it was. See, that came after a season of your heart being shaped by certain rhythms and disciplines in your life. So, so you'll find me on a Saturday afternoon, either at a football game or watching a football game. How did that happen? Well, when I was growing up, when I was seven, every Saturday or seven Saturdays out of the fall, my dad and I would get in the car and we would drive from Chattanooga to Knoxville an hour and 40 minutes, right? From East Ridge to Neyland Stadium. 
And for 10 years of my life, I never knew not going to a football game was an option. I didn't even know that was possible, right? It's something that I did. It was a part of the regular discipline of my life. It was something that we budgeted for. It's something that we prioritized. It's something that was a discipline in our life. And guess what? It shaped my heart. It shapes your heart, whatever that thing happens to be. And knowing that that's what happens, I think, actually gives us a measure of hope. Because a lot of times we read a passage like this, which talks about being content and talks about not impaling ourselves spiritually by wanting more. And we're we're kind of like, but Pastor Paul, I I don't even know where to begin. Listen to Matthew 6.21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And for Paul, he introduces us to this idea of generosity. Because this is how generosity is to function in the life of a Christian. You know, we're having this huge cultural debate about vaccines, right? And we're not going there, except to say, why do people who get vaccines get vaccines? Well, it's because they want to be inoculated and to not get sick. Well, Paul says, there is a spiritual vaccine that I've given you as a believer that if you are to practice it as a discipline in your life, you will be or have a much greater chance of being inoculated against the covetousness that's brought many people into spiritual ruin. And Paul says, for the rich in this present age, here's, here's your spiritual discipline. Here, here's your shot. Here's your vaccination shot. Be generous. Give, give your time away. Give your money away. Give your resources away. See, we we typically think, again, I said this a second ago, that our big problem with our hearts is that we don't have enough and we have to get more. And Paul says, no, no, it's actually the reverse. That when you introduce the the spiritual discipline of generosity into your life, God begins to pry your fingers from your stuff. God begins to pry your fingers from your heart and you realize, you know what? Yeah, I, I, I didn't need that. You know, I had to say no to that in order to say yes to this. You know, what, what, what an incredible spiritual blessing that was. Guys, let me just encourage you towards something this summer season. I think summers are a great time for spiritual assessment. And I would encourage you, I encourage myself to just think about the rhythms and patterns of generosity in your life. Certainly, it begins, okay, it's, it, it, it begins with giving, with money, but, but it goes much further than that. It's not less than that, but it's much further than that, because a lot of times as Americans, we stroke checks and say, you know what, I did my part, somebody else will take care of the rest. But generosity as a biblical concept makes a holistic claim on us. So it's not just about our money, but what's the most precious thing to you? Is it not your time? Man, don't we seem so busy? Don't we seem, our life seems so crowded? But one of the things that God calls us to think about in terms of our generosity is not just our money, it's our time. It's our service. It's our gifts. It's our resources. It's it's our very selves that we make available to invest in and serve other people. 
to serve the body of Christ, to serve our neighbors. And Paul says, when we do this, look at verse 19, this is a promise. We store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation of the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Christian, don't you want that? Don't you want to live a life that's bigger than you? That has meaning outside of you? That, that is something that God leverages not just for today, but that somehow has the echo of eternity. Last, last point and we're done. Finally, Paul entrusts Timothy to a powerful presence. Look at verse 13. Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God. Because one of the things that Paul is reminding Timothy of is that he is fighting this fight of faith. Not absent from, but in fact, in accordance with the very presence of God. The very presence of Jesus. Not only is Jesus with Timothy and with you, Jesus is in Timothy. Jesus is in you. And Paul tells Timothy, verse 13, Timothy, look to Jesus. He fought the same fight as you. He tells him in 1 Timothy, Timothy, Jesus is coming back. In verse 15, he says, Timothy, Jesus is the sovereign king. In verse 16, he says, Jesus, Timothy, is eternal. And so what you do matters. What happens in this life matters. But most importantly, Timothy, and look at verse 21, God's grace is with you. See, as Timothy is fighting the fight for contentment, as you and I are fighting the fight for contentment, Paul reminds us, Timothy, the reason that you can fight this fight is because your God is a generous God. See, he did not consider equality with God, Jesus, to be held on to, but he released it. He gave himself away. He gave him his, his very life away so that you and I could have the very riches of Christ to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And it's Jesus, Timothy, that's ultimately the solution to all of your contentment issues. So Christian, as we prepare to leave behind these words of Timothy to the church, let me just ask you, do you know this Jesus? Have you embraced his generosity through his grace? And if you have, are you fighting the good fight? Are you entrusting yourself to the disciplines of God that God uses to pry open your hearts and to pour out your life as a blessing for others? We do it not to earn the grace of God, not to earn the favor of God, but because God has given us his favor and his grace. And he calls us to do it. And as we do it, we take hold of that which is truly life.